0: Welcome to Heavy Networking. Greg, we had an enjoyable show today with sponsor Catchpoint. We're talking about experience monitoring, which sounds like magical marketing words, but the whole idea is to get a sense of what the user butt in chair, face in screen is experiencing when they consume an application. A lot of us see this from the network side or the security side or the developer side and have our perspectives on what things are like, but the reality is There's a common set of data we should all be looking at, metrics that are meaningful to everyone in IT, and Catchpoint helps deliver that. Uh, We talked to JP Blejo today, and he gives us a lot of detail on exactly how this is done. What stuck out to you in this conversation, Greg?
1: I think the the thing that I always reminded of when we talk to digital experience monitoring, that's the name the analysts give it, right? DEM, D-E-M, digital experience monitoring. Um, is it's different from network monitoring or network visibility tools. In network tools, you're talking about packets and flows. Um, In digital experience monitoring, you're you're taking some of that, but you're going further. You're actually trying to create synthetic transactions from the user point of view, or you've got agents on the internet collecting information about the internet. So you're actually looking at it from the user perspective. And that's really important because if you can get feedback from I'm loading a web page as the image is loading, are the ads loading, are the videos loading, right? That's much more than I can see the packets are responding in twenty milliseconds, right? And so it's that gap. And what that gap means to businesses is what I got us talking about in today's show. As well as a good argument about the difference between silo busting or bridge building.
0: <laughs> silo busting or bridge building, indeed. Potato, potato. Uh, site reliability engineering comes up in this conversation, and we spend a lot of time focusing on how IT should work in the context around visibility tools and Catchpoint. Please enjoy this conversation with JP Bleho. JP, this is um, not the first time we've talked to Catchpoint. You guys were on Heavy Networking episode. 547, not all that long ago, but for those who maybe missed that show and haven't heard of Catchpoint, give us the 10,000 foot overview. just a few sentences on who you guys are and what you do.
2: Absolutely. So uh, Catchpoint, we are a digital experience monitoring solution provider. Uh, so essentially we allow organizations to measure their customer or their employee experiences. So we focus on employee experience, customer experience, as well as network monitoring as well, which Uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to through this conversation.
0: Right. And as I remember talking with you guys before, you you didn't start out doing the network monitoring part, but you've you've added that over the years. And now that's a pretty robust part of the solution.
2: Exactly. I mean, we were founded about 12 years ago, I think a little over 12 years now. And it was primarily a synthetic testing tool. And we've matured and built more capabilities, uh, real user monitoring. So ROM, uh, we've built out some, a node network, which is allowing us to really expand into the, into the network side and uh, the internet side
0: of monitoring. Okay. Well, you bring up the internet side, which actually leads me into my first question. One of the things I wanted to get into with you guys is how do you do digital experience monitoring, user experience monitoring in the, internet age. Here's the context. I used to be able to control all that stuff. The network was mine. I owned the whole thing with the exception of whatever the service provider did. And even that I kind of owned, I could see it all. And, and, and it was mine. It isn't mine anymore. It's everybody else's. And so trying to give back to the business, some kind of meaningful metrics on what the experience is for folks out there seems like, I don't know, throw some synthetic transactions at it and hope, but I know you guys have a more organized way to do this. Talk us through it.
2: Yeah. So I think that's really the value of of digital experience monitoring. It's not just kind of a holistic approach to monitoring. It's more of allowing organizations to understand who their users are and how they access the information that the said enterprise organization or large organization is trying to to offer up to, to the consumer or to their users. And How this happens is, you know, I think a lot of people say that the internet is organic. I just call it chaotic. It is a wild, wild mess out there. And what DEM tries to do is say, look, you know, you have typical network monitoring teams that are monitoring the health of their, the backbone, the last mile, all of those different stages of the internet itself. But what happens is, they're not always in what we call a critical path to the user itself. And I'll use one of the examples. It's one of the ones I like to attack and I will not give you the name, but I think most of you will assume it's a very large news media outlet based out of Atlanta, Georgia. And if you ever go to their particular website, it is a sea of information and you know, I'm a news junkie. So I love going to these types of sites and, and consuming as much information and as much you know facts as I can all the way from the daily weather to what's happening geopolitically. But when you go to their particular website, I, I almost get the feeling that they don't understand who their, their user or their, their customer is because you have video that kind of slides down onto the main screen. You have advertisements, retargeting, news articles. And it's very confusing to, to me because so when I try to click on a particular article there, a video pops down by the time you know the reaction of my mouse clicks to that article and I go to a video as opposed to the article that I wanna read. And to me, that basically lets me say that they don't understand their user or their user processes, because in that instance, there are more than
0: 300 steps. Or you could say they're really evil and they know the interface so well and the user so well that they stick it in just before you well, click on the <laughs> thing you want so that you have to watch the video.
2: I, I relate to them as I call them the late night infomercial website, where it's it's one of those where act now or you know, before you go, click here, <laughs> do this. Uh, but but the problem with that is I think in most Organizations and enterprise, what they try to understand is what are the critical elements that their user wants to access. And the example that I give in a good way is something like a Travelocity or an Expedia travel website. Um, Because when you go to them, you know, you get there and it basically says, Do you want to fly? Do you want to reserve a hotel, a car, or do you want a combination of it all? And it really allows you to kind of navigate specifically to what you're looking for. And in that instance, digital experience monitoring can do the the network as well as the application monitoring and provide all the values necessary for the organization to measure performance against. While there may be retargeting ads on that that particular page, there may be some CDN video to watch. It's not part of that critical path. It's still an option for a consumer or user to access, but it's not impacting the experience. And the problem Hmm. that I would say network monitors have had before is they're measuring against all of those capabilities that that particular website is trying to execute on and it's, it's one of, of
1: those it's one of those challenges it's what I call sometimes I refer to this as the teenage sex fallacy right which is how metrics lie right And you say well what the network's working fine but the user experience is not because this page is loading and it loads this and then it loads this and then it loads this and then they've got delayed image loading but the image loading only happens after the ads have loaded or something like that. So the user experience is degraded but the network performance is getting blamed because the user doesn't seem the page, that's a fairly common sort of thing. And that's like, and if you go and ask the networking person they go like well, the network's working fine. And if you go and ask the server person they go like well, the server person's working fine but the user says it's appalling. That's the teenage sex valve. So you go and ask teenage women and they say, no, we have no, definitely no sex at all. And you go and talk to teenage boys and they're all, you know, completely different story. And the reality is that finding the truth here is the key. And what Catchpoint does, I think, is drives into giving you a vision of all the visibility, like giving me visibility into all the different things so that I actually end up knowing where the problems are or knowing probably even more importantly, where the problems are not. Exactly. And and it's
2: coming from that particular user-centric approach, whereas hmm. it's not just a series of tools that you're looking at and kind of combining your own measures and measuring against that.
0: It's not. Yeah. And this is the thing I you're making my brain spin here, JP, because it's not just like monitoring the things. Engineers, we're so focused on the artifacts that we create or that we manage network devices or 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 WAN lines or or flows even and that kind of stuff. We don't think about it from a consumption perspective where all of the different elements that we like to think of that are a part of the system come together. We don't we like those elements because we can control them. We don't think about it from the user perspective. So I think that's one of the points you're making here is that that user-oriented perspective on monitoring where you're aggregating all these different data points. Mm-hmm. Especially when you come to an app like an application,
2: when you when you think like development engineering and, and how they measure features and changes that they've made on a particular tool that they've you know deployed, they're going to look at it and say, hey, you know, based on performance, you know, it's connecting to the internet well, the logins are working, all of these particular capabilities are fine. But what they don't care about, and maybe I shouldn't say that in such a negative way, but their focus is on how the application performs with respect to it's connections, mm. the internet, yeah. the you know, the services. They don't look at how from the user's perspective, how they're coming from home and connecting via whatever carrier they're provided that they're doing and the performance
1: along that way. Because like I've been in meetings where the person who's displaying the page goes like, it, you know, I need it to do this but the ad inventory person's going like, no, 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 my ads need to be first. And the video person who gets rewarded on how many videos get displayed is going, no, no, I want, right? And sometimes what you have is this competing problem and you actually have to show all the metrics together and then have to show that all of them sum up to a negative user experience. And so you talked earlier, or you alluded to real user monitoring or RUM as it's conventionally called. And that part of RUM isn't just, monitoring the network and that's mainly what we're talking about here but a key part about going beyond the network is this idea that monitoring a web page load so how long does it take for the dom the core of the front the html framework to load then how long does it take for the images to load how long does it take for the javascript to load how long does it take for the page to render at the users like loading a web page actually is a multi staged thing and that's part of what your catch point is getting into right a
2: hundred percent, exactly right. And and it's also one of those that it allows them to see what the customer or what the user is actually trying to accomplish and in some instances allow them to do some form of capacity or or change management associated with it. When they see patterns and trends happening, they can realign the, the actual landing page to make sure that those particular features and capabilities have higher performance or or load up faster because Usually, a you know a consumer like myself is going to click on that and then move on to the next stage.
0: So okay, so we're, we're talking about application level stuff, and, and network engineers are no strangers to HTTP and how the protocol works and all the different components that go into actually loading a web page. But traditionally, these groups have been a bit siloed, where the things the application and the devs care about maybe are different from the things that people down lower in the stack at the infrastructure level care about. So how does Catchpoint help me? bridge the gap between what I as a network engineer am seeing and what we might be seeing if we're looking higher up the stack?
2: It does. So my background has been in network security. So I focused on kind of the relationship between security operations and network operations historically, um, you know, specific, uh, you know, particularly around like DDoS attacks and things of that nature where the network team actually manages some of the security capabilities. Now, you know, working for Catchpoint, uh, um. um, seeing it from a different lens where it's the development team, the DevOps and the NetOps trying, you know, starting to confer, converge. And that's happening in, I would almost call a triad where it's DevOps, NetOps, then NetOps and SecOps. So it's really all three of those starting to converge in operations. And if not in operations and and in their kind of daily lives and responsibilities, at least in the sharing of data and how they're measuring against that. Because right now, I call that triad, the dysfunction junction, uh, you know, development network, because, you know, we all, they, each group has their own set of tools that they're measuring against for their specific unique roles and responsibilities, but the data is being manipulated differently for each one of those to make sure that they're meeting their particular goals. And what Catchpoint allows is, you know, a, a solution that each individual can access, you know, run tests against and get the same type of outputs and data that can be shared across the different departments so you're looking at you know the same level of tests or at least the same level of information that you're going to be able to share because so, you know one thing that i've always said in from the marketing perspective is data is only good as the data that's that's being inputted into it and so you can make certain things perform how you want by running a report one way versus another but you know with with catchpoint it's a single source of data that should be shared across a different team so you can start measuring and monitoring your Selves against those different data inputs.
0: Okay, you just answered a question ahead. You said single source of data. All right, so that means no matter what perspective I'm coming from, whether it's dev or networking or security, that, that triad you mentioned, I can go to catch point and get the kind of information that I'm looking for. Does does that mean, what's that mean? I mean, I have a different dashboard depending on what group I'm in or?
2: So, you know, you can customize, we'll call them waterfalls or explore uh, and you can create sp- unique tests and capabilities, and see it in different ways. Um, so you can—I don't want to use the word manipulate the data because it doesn't change or alter the data itself, but it gives you certain visualizations. So, from a development DevOps perspective, you can actually see some of the interfaces into kind of your data center, or if you're using a SaaS service, uh, you know, it's like like an Azure or whoever to you know host your particular application. You can see what's happening, how customers are logging in, accessing the information and, and measure that data. But then you can have a network operations team that can say, you know, for let's talk about a user experience from the perspective of an employee. You can see all the way from that endpoint, you know, to that last mile, into the backbone and to that cloud service and, and see those inputs that are specific closer to the user. Um, whereas a DevOps might be closer to the application. But the the information and the outputs that are coming from that will be using that same source of data and, and
1: have that visualization across DevOps, network operations. Now, I, I've i used this technology in this area to do what some people call silo busting. Uh, I prefer the word silo busting because that's my preferred take. The other way is calling it bridge building, where you <laughs> bring teams together and you build bridges. I prefer the busting metaphor, but uh, and the idea here is that if you can come around, people underestimate the power of monitoring and visibility tools in terms of leveling the gaps between disciplines. And if you can actually agree on a monitoring or visibility and a metric set, which you'll get wrong, but you know, that's a different problem for you'll have to, you know, don't get fixated on your dashboard. Your dashboard is just a work in progress. Today's dashboard is, not a piece of art that's the result of the final, you know, it's just where it is now and it'll change. So different story for another day. But what I am dead set keen on is busting down silos. How do you get the developer and the networking infrastructure and the storage infrastructure and the server infrastructure, you know, all that stuff, the Kubernetes dude and the service mesh you know, the mistress of service and all that stuff, how do you bring them all together? And the answer is a good visibility tool and you need to bust those silos because if you've got the data to back up a comment of as simple as it's not the network and you've got a data to say that, then you know it's not the network and the team can now start to work together and the networking person can chip in or the server person can chip in and say, well, you know, or the the person who's doing the service mesh who may not be, you know, service meshes are pretty new and generally broken, and generally dysfunctional, and they might suddenly find that, well, actually, it is the service mesh. Well, damn it, now I have to go and spend my weekend. But the right person is spending the weekend, not, yeah. Exactly. And and you kind of nail on
2: another area and focus that we have seen is, is really that rise of, of the, the role and responsibility around a, a site reliability engineer, so the SRE. And in a lot of instances, we are starting to see where they become that Barrier-busting, bridge-building um, role, where they they become kind of the champion or the advocate around D, digital experience monitoring capabilities and sharing that data across the different silos to get them to accept and adopt that data as being the t- form of information that they want to work off of, and then become an advocate going forward, if not a source of information or kind of the go-to for helping them kind of develop the the monitoring uh, reports and and running the tests. So we're we're seeing that SEO, SRE role starting mm-hmm. to really gain in not just capabilities across the different silos, even though they come from, you know more from a DevOps side or an engineering side, but really spanning the kind of that broad spectrum of the different silos and participating in it, as well as moving up the stack within the organization itself and becoming kind of a single source of information and reports for the management to make you know strategic decisions.
0: But when you have a role like this, a site reliability engineer, and you've got an IT group that's committed to this and the business wants to look at IT that way, it really changes the way IT groups work together. I've been in some shops where it was pretty adversarial. You know, if there was something wrong on the network, you know, the server and virtualization people would be over there in the corner going, ha, your network sucks, we're awesome. Which sounds childish, but there was almost this political, we're better than them, we're, et cetera, as opposed to, no, all of this is a system designed to deliver applications and business benefit. All of us need to work together to deliver to, to deliver a system that is going to most aptly make that application available and is going to be fast and performant and resilient and all of those things. Um When you have a site reliability kind of a role, as you were just describing JP, that bridges all of these uh, people together, that's the thinking that ends up resulting, Um, which... (laughs) when you have that unified interface that is also another um another way to bridge that gap i was thinking about this so many places where everybody's got their own tools they see the world their own way and it's it's when you can look at the, a common interface even if you're looking at data that's important to you versus data that's important to someone else but you've got a common interface and a common data set that is also unifying and the ultimate win there is is for the business you have an IT team working together, not an adversarial IT team being childish and pointing fingers and making snarky comments in conference meetings, not that that ever happens. <laughs> not at all, never does. You know, I
2: think was it Tony in our in the last podcast, Tony Ferrelli, who mentioned kind of the, the acronym of MTTI, the meantime to innocence. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I bring that up now because I think it's one of the, when we talk about the convergence of development operations and network operations, you know, I've spent a, a fair amount of time speaking with NetOps teams specific to security and, you know, I'll say the perimeter. Uh, and what they focus on a lot is ruling out the failures or ruling out the problems. Like they, they don't really know where to start. So they start with what they can rule out. So- uh, Ruling I, out. For a second, there exactly, is, uh, you're yeah. saying rolling no, no. out. I'm like, rolling no. out failure. I don't want to do that. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> to, to rule <laughs> yeah. out the problems. Yeah, so yeah, they, sure. they, they go with what they know. And, and I think an SRE role really helps in- reducing that list of things that need to be ruled out because they're coming from that outward perspective in being able to see the traffic all the way into, to a certain part, past the perimeter into certain applications, but allowing the network team to actually function more efficiently and support some of the other types of capabilities beyond just network availability and system availability. And I think we're starting to see kind of that acceptance from from certain network operations teams and an SRE, and, and it's really helping some of these enterprise organizations build very unique tests uh, on our tools, so they can share that data. And instead of you know logging in and, and some of the monitoring tools that they have had um, and looking at them, they're just going directly to you know our platform, looking at some of the pre-staged reports that the SRE and them share. And being able to very quickly say, oh, I know where the next stage I need to go is to identify where the problem is. Because I'm seeing all green lights. I see a red light here. Now I'm going to go into you know this particular location with this particular carrier and this particular cloud service and start investigating.
0: So you're implying that I can write a, a custom test that's peculiar to my environment? So it, it's
2: really about kind of the dashboard itself and, and, and having that visualization and looking at, you know, a couple of features. But yeah, you can work with uh, your SRE to kind of set some unique tests that will show this, that performance and allow you to identify some of the potential risks and, and then take that information forward to SecOps if it's a security failure or back to the dev team and say, hey, we need to work on this, this isn't working correctly and, and kind of either roll back a recent release or, you know, build new features in the mm-hmm. next coming release.
1: I've always found uh, my personal experience with SecOps and visibility is proving that security is either damaging the user experience. The security department says, no, you know, (laughs) the department of no, you know, you can't do that or no, you must do this is my favorite one. You must implement this security. So you implement it and then suddenly realize the user experience degrades by 30%, 40%, right? And then you have to go back to them and say, we implemented it but there's a price to be paid. You have to make it better somehow. Um, and that's where SecOps tends to fail is that they don't measure real world things like success. They just say, I wanna send all your packets into an echo chamber. So they go around in circles for at least you know 500 milliseconds and who cares if the user performance is low, at least they're safe. <laughs> but the, but that's the difference, Greg, between, I mean, the, so many years that
0: you and I have spent working in teams that were organized like that. I mean, the way you even phrased it, you over there in SecOps, as opposed to the, you know, the we mentality that we hear a lot of it. And actually, this is a question for you, JP. We're talking about SREs and the rise of the SRE and so on. How How often are you seeing organizations go this way where they are really trying to unify the operations teams?
2: This year, and I think it's not just a natural progression, I think the pandemic itself has really shined a light on user experience, probably more so because we have a lot of remote employees like myself working from home, having this need to understand why I sound so horrible on a Zoom call, or why I can't access certain applications at certain times of the day. But the the role of the SRE is becoming extremely important in that because we are seeing that this pandemic create long-term changes to corporate policies. And, you know, I think this kind of ties in really well with what Greg just mentioned about, you know, security coming from a zero trust mentality and the internet having trust everything and anything, uh, and it's kind of converging at the user experience itself. So this role of an SRE coming in kind of helped create that fair balance between there is some risk, but the performance. In order for performance to be here, we have to assume this level of risk and negotiating in some respects with the business and the security uh, team to fundamentally come to a term to say, hey, you know, at the sake of performance, we're going to allow these types of transactions and capabilities and, and even systems to be open. So that our employees can access information freely or can access certain capabilities to do their actual job. And I think that role of an SRE is, is really mm-hmm. what's coming into play now, saying, hey, we can be that source of information that unblinded factual data that all parts of the IT team can agree are are measured and, and actual. And then giving that to the different divisions to kind of help create that fair decision, you know, whether it's an employee working from home, dealing with security related issues, or it's at the consumer level of, you know, um, do we open up our, you know, retail sales in these particular regions and, and and such.
1: I think the other side of distributed work is as an infrastructure professional who is no longer on, on the site, you know, not no longer on the premise of where your infrastructure is, you also need more tooling so you don't actually get stressed out. You're not, in the data center anymore you can't just walk in there you're not you know connected to a wan there's a lot more uncertainty i call i, I like you alluded it uh, earlier to the fact that the internet is an un you know a domain of wild and whatever and it's ugly and it's brutal i actually see the internet as more like a wilderness it's untamed it's wild it's you know it's like a forest and it's got you know uh, creatures that might attack you if you're not careful but that's every wilderness is also beautiful and got features in it. Is that is that too poetic? Am I waxing too lyrical here? You know. Uh-huh.
2: No, I, I think it's fine. It's kind of like your your difference between building bridges and knocking down silos. It's wild and chaotic versus wilderness and beautiful. So
1: Exactly, yeah. Like, you know, you see it your way, potato, potato. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think if you're going to start doing distributed work, and a lot of the times we focus on the users for distributed work, what we don't focus on is you as an infrastructure professional being able to be in control when you're not on site, when you're not in your job, Right. What about your job where you need to be in control of the situation? You need to be able to respond to SecOps who's saying, This is a problem. This is, you know, the world's ending. And you've got to be able to pull up the visibility tools to say, No, it's not. Or, Yes, it is, whatever it is. Or if the DevOps, NetOps people are suddenly on your case saying, My service mesh is performing badly, it must be your switches, or, you know, it's your SD WAN you know, whatever the hell the that you're monitoring is, you don't want to have to suddenly spend all night, all day, you know, trawling through switch logs and pingings and trace rate. You need a tool that's going to transform the way you work so that you don't have to stress out all the time too.
2: Exactly. And and you need access to that tool across the entire organization because what you don't have is a 24 by 7 SRE. You know, interestingly enough, we there was a conference this week, SRECon, And a couple of actual sessions really focused on uh, employee health for the SRE. Uh, And I think what we saw during the pandemic is this kind of return back to remote employees. And I won't say return, but this Mm -hmm. um, basic need for people to work from home. Um, But as such, you know, the the work-life balance was severely altered, especially those that have families versus those that don't. And people are shifting to. You know, creating a new balance of of work and life because they're they're now officially a remote employee. But the impact Mm. to failures and 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 network issues is now truly a 24 by 7 problem because you have people logging in it throughout the entire 24 hour cycle. But your SRE might be in California and is trying Mm. to work no more than a 12 hour workday, but is getting you know pinged by the different teams in the middle of the night because there's a potential issue because someone is up working and doesn't have access to something or, you know, a system is down or they believe is down. And, you know, I I think one of the biggest lies in corporate America is when you say that you're a 24 by seven company that your entire team is running 24 hours a day. That is so far not the truth. (laughs) I've worked for a company that had more than a couple hundred thousand employees. And I do know instances where someone went on vacation and nothing could get done until they got back. So, no matter. What we say in the marketplace of being a twenty-four by seven organization. This is your
1: regular is- reminder: if you can't be replaced, you can't be promoted. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that might- job security also means no job promotion, right? That is so true too, and that ad- sides. yeah. Yep. And I think for,
2: you know when it comes to the site reliability engineer, that they're tr- they're realizing that this shift is creating some long term impact to work life yeah. balance. Uh, so it again, you nailed it earlier when you were talking about you know. Talking about the service mesh going down and, and those particular issues. Well, the individual now being called is is the SRE, and if yes. they use a, yeah. a tool like a Catchpoint, you know that that DevOps team, that NetOps team, can log in and see where the potential now, issue is for them. I just
1: I just want to spin this a little bit. Now, the important part here is that Catchpoint actually does data gathering in multiple different ways. We talked earlier about having synthetic testing and Catchpoint came from this synthetic testing. So that's where I deploy these probes around my network. And they might be physical probes. They might be probes I install on users' computers. They may even be in some cases on certain types of networking devices. Mm -hmm. And the good part about synthetic testing, just because this is what I liked about them, was being able to run tests on a Saturday. So you could run a baseline on a Saturday when the network wasn't loaded or a you know a time like, and you could schedule it to happen when nothing was active and you could do a baseline test and then run it during peak time and then see the, def- see the differential. So you get a loaded, unloaded that you can't, that's not something that you can do in normal operations. Now, that's one thing that Catchpoint does is that synthetic testing, but you also have passive tooling. But the thing that I don't think most people realize is that you also have internet tooling. So you have a network of probes in the internet Gathering data about the status of the internet itself. So, if my internal probes, say running over SD WAN, start to say, ah, oh, there's a problem, this part of America or, you know, this part of Australia is not performing well, you can correlate that data with your internet monitoring, you know, checking that the wilderness is not on fire. <laughs> if you like, as a metaphor, uh, and and tell it and say, look, oh, yes, we know that there's a reconvergence event happening on the Australian to Singapore fiber optical cable or something like that. Exactly.
2: And it allows you one of two things too, you know, especially if you're looking at it in real time or you're running a test and it comes up as you know factual information that you can act against, you can work with the network team to reroute traffic and, and assure that availability happens. Um, and you know, catch point, I think that's where we've invested heavily over the last couple of years is on kind of this network node network that we are node network that we have. Mm. it It has more than hundred and fifty uh, nodes globally. Uh, I think we have the most from a DEM perspective, the most number of nodes in mm. China and some of the emerging countries uh, where a lot of e-commerce is happening right now. Um, so, we have that sustained visibility that, you know, most organizations don't have. And and even not just at the DEM level, but definitely at the enterprise level where a lot of organizations don't have that insight. You know, one of the examples that I like to share is, you know, recently we have a, a Southeast Asia-based customer who was expanding into the Middle East. They were having a very major launch uh, and they wanted to be able to assure that they had availability for uh, the UAE. Um, so they they had some hmm. pent up demand that they were ex- expand or expecting. So, what they wanted us to do is to make sure that they were giving the right quality of service to those potential customers when they did their launch. And we did. You know, they signed up with us to do some synthetic testing with us, and they they came to realize that, you know, as part of that digital experience for those customers, their CDN was failing on them because the CDN provider, even though they were a global provider, was relaying traffic from their Germany POP and sending it down into, you know, Southern, I hate to say Southern Middle East, but into the United Arab Emirates. And the reason is, you know, that that for that CDN provider, they were very comfortable with supporting Egypt and the Northern parts of the Middle East from that particular location, but there's significant latency, you know, crossing the desert to to Dubai or Abu Dhabi. Um, But based on the SLA that they had with that CDN provider, they were still within the 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 acceptable range because it was an aggregate of all of the Middle East and and how that CDM provider was all providing right, performance. Yeah. So that visibility with with the node network because we have you know one in Abu Dhabi that where we could see the performance coming in and latency just associated with that one part of traffic that was impacting or potentially impacting customer experience um, allowed that that I'll say manufacturer that manufacturer the opportunity to work with their CDN vendor to up the performance for that region and assure- We gave the opportunity
1: a chance to excel. Exactly. By providing <laughs> them with uh, insights into what was wrong with their product. Yeah. Exactly. So and what and you're basically it, saying is a CDN got turned off. But it, the any cast for that area. (laughs) Let's just say a new
2: pop was very quickly added in in the (laughs) Southern Middle East. (laughs) Uh,
1: See, and and this is one of these situations where encouraging vendors to find opportunities to assist you is, (laughs) Uh, the other way is to, you know, beat them over the head with the information hammer was the one term that I, you know, potato, potato. Um, (laughs) You know.
2: (laughs) And the good thing is that... they were able to prove a business case for that CDN provider saying, you know, this is our anticipated demand in this region, this is the traffic we anticipate to see and the CDN was like, absolutely, we'll set it up right away. So it was, yeah. you know, it's, it's a win win from that perspective, but it's being able to share that little bit of information that impacts the user experience that mm. normally wouldn't have been. Of measured
1: against. It's uh, you know, another one of those. What, this is another. I just give a warning here. What's get measured is what gets managed. The CDN provider measured success by the whole of the Middle East to that CDN pop. Yep. Your experience was all of your users, wherever they are, should get the same experience. That is not necessarily the same thing. You have one country, you know, one geography which was accessing the CDN over a suboptimal infrastructure. And the only way to know that is to be doing real user monitoring and understanding. Yes. Was that the page load? Was that the CDN provider? Was it in the page? Like if you actually unpick this, you could be saying, was it the JavaScript delivery network? Was it the image network? Is the video network suddenly going through some sort of, uh, that country might've had a thing where they check the video to make sure it complies with some local laws, right? Or local societal norms. And yeah. it's not at all easy to just go and say, oh, that's what the problem is. You actually need to really be able to unpack it. It's not trace route is what I'm, saying it's quite a bit more sophisticated.
2: Yep. And and at at the user experience level, who gets the blame? You know, me as the individual who's accessing the application, I'll be honest with you. If I can't get to the actual application, I blame the internet. If I can get to the application and it's slow, I blame the application. But a consumer blames the website that they're going to, not the internet itself. And, you know, that's really a problem that organizations need to understand is, consumers and users are very fickle about who gets the blame. They just yeah, want the Yeah, it would right have been results. really
1: tough to get the CDN supplier's attention and say, it's your fault. Exactly. But when you've got the data, the, ba- the blame hammer hits like, right between the eyes. Yep. JP, I want
0: to go back to something you had mentioned earlier that, that caught me because you said you know the new world, basically all of these changes that we've seen as a result of the 2020 pandemic and so on are permanent. But I've read mixed things about that. Um, one of the permanent changes is theoretically, we're all going to be working from home forever, but the flip side of that is, no, no, when all this settles back down and we're all vaccinated and all the rest, some folks are saying, nah, eh, we're headed back to the office. What, what some senior people are saying, some sea some levels So I'm curious why you believe permanent.
1: What he actually means is old people. <laughs> 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 I've noticed that it's almost exclusively old people, like, Old, you know, forty-five plus. I just can't imagine not, yeah, just not being in the office, like you know.
2: You know, I think there's a lot of factors. So if if I'm putting my predictor hat on, I I would honestly say that you know, remote employment may not be at the levels it are now, but it is definitely going to be much higher than it was at a pre-pandemic stage. Uh, And there's a couple of factors associated with that. One is, you know, my company's based out of Manhattan. And, you know, we're already looking at the middle of the year of potential reopenings. And even at that, it is at such a small stage Mm. that, you know, to have any sense of kind of employment culture or or work office or I'm sorry, office culture happening, uh, it's definitely not going to happen next year. And interestingly enough, uh, you know, I, I attended a Cisco Connect event. They were sharing a tour, a virtual tour of their Singapore office, and they kind of stated it very profoundly, but it resonated well with me when they said, you know, we have two two parts of our office. We have a customer section and a employee section, and neither the two shall ever intertwine. So customers will always be, you know, positioned in this part of the, the office space for meetings and, you know, executive business reviews, etc., And the employees will always be, with the exception of going to those particular meetings, always in the employee section. But then what made it even more interesting was they said, you know, this office is not an office for employees to come and work. It's a place for employees to come and collaborate. And Hmm. and I think that that's the nuance where offices will continue. But coming into the office every day just to get out of your own loud house is not necessarily going to be the common It's going to be when Mm -hmm. you're meeting up with individuals to get something accomplished
1: and you're just sick and tired of Zoom. Zoom It's most likely the way forward is that you are going to be sometimes working distributed. So wherever suits you. For some people, that'll be a coffee shop. It might be a local co-working space where you rent a desk for per day, which I've done quite a bit of. And for other people, it might be going into the office because you've got three children under five. Mm -hmm. And, you know,
2: (laughs) or seven (laughs) dogs or whatever. (laughs) And the other thing is, you know, what most people, unfortunately, don't realize in the IT industry, we've been somewhat stabilized through the pandemic where there hasn't been a significant number of of layoffs or, or job loss in this area. And in some instances, we've seen increased demand, especially around the service provider and telecommunications side of the business. And the hiring is happening. They don't really care where you live right now. They just mm. they need to fill those seats. So right. when they go back to a hey, we want everyone in the office, and and they reach out to JP Bleho who's living in South Florida, you know, there's no office for me to go to. So I think they're going to see a real kind of disparate employee uh, instance mm. where their employees are no longer in a forty mile radius of the offices that I they think, once were.
1: And and the second part about this is a lot of employees will say I don't wish to work in the office. And if you want to force me, I'll, uh, I'll be moving on. And if you've got a job where that is actually you are in demand, and you can make those choices, you will make those choices, right? Yeah, exactly. Why are you driving? And if I'm somebody who commutes 90 minutes each way, I know what my motivation looks like. There there are
0: plenty of companies who've recognized this too. We're we're seeing some that are flattening out how they do their compensation across geographic regions it's no longer you get paid a lot more if you live in the metro area it doesn't we don't care where you live this is what this job pays because they want the talent they realize since everybody can work remote or many roles can certainly work remote why limit to a geographic region the pool of workers that they can draw from make it national make it global in some cases and bring those folks in And and as they've kind of expanded their
2: or either accelerated or changed their digital transformation projects from this year and into next year, the reality is they're set up now for this distributed workforce environment. Mm. And... You know, when you buy Catchpoint, you have full visibility into all of your endpoint users to know that, yes, they have access to the applications to do their job. Mm. So it's not so much about assuring that, you know, they have access to, you know, their Salesforce.com or, you know, any of their other optimization tools that they need that are in the the data center on the first floor. It's, you know, they all have access to those cloud-based services from wherever they are. Mm. And we have visibility into that to see that you know JP's not lying when he says he yeah, doesn't have that Yeah I was going to say access.
1: and that's the other side of it is there's so much of it now is cloud based if you're using office 365 and using teams outlook docs and you know blah 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 it you don't being in the office used to be the fastest way to access that yeah. now it's kind of a little bit different it depends on your internet connection and maybe the office has a better internet connection than your house but maybe not and
2: it is true i, I actually Previous to Catchpoint, I had better internet at my home office than I did in the office because it was just me versus, you know, hundreds of me's <laughs> trying to, you know, to lock Ethan, maybe we should revisit this question six months from now, and you can prove that my prediction is wrong, which usually tends to happen anyway. Well,
0: JP, I was going to agree with you on the internet access thing, because Greg, in America, um, I don't know how it is in the European markets, but in in America, it was so expensive to get a business circuit. Very often, people are like, I'd rather just work from home because the internet's faster, because you'd have a broadband connection without nearly as much contention for the link.
1: Especially during the day. Like, you know, it might be 200 to 1 at 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock at night, but... In theory, you're not working at that time. So it is complicated.
2: I would say one of the things associated with the pandemic that we saw at a catch point, which did surprise me, and I'm kind of changing the subject a little bit um, is, you know Black Friday, Cyber Monday, or even um, singles day earlier in November, we did not see as much craziness that occurs on the internet on those high volume kind of e-commerce purchases. And I think there's a lot of things associated. We talk about the pandemic throughout this podcast, and that might have something to do with it. But I do think a lot of organizations have been preparing more for a heavy volume uh, e-commerce capability over a longer period of time. It's not going to, you know, I I think was a Best Buy has been doing Black Friday for three weeks now. So I I think they're kind of leveling the curve that way. But I I only bring this up from a predictions and we can go into detail on this is, one of my personal fears, they were able to place their orders, they were able to hopefully get those orders, you know, provided the postal services, etc. I'll do the deliveries on time. But I'm not sure we're ready for the reverse logistics side of things. Because most people will get their gifts, open them up, and you know, a certain percentage like to take them back for store credit and buy something else or return them. That physical element of going back to the stores is not going to be there for them. So, you know, a lot of these e-commerce sites and and companies need to be able to be prepared for the return concept of these gifts, utilizing the same methodologies that they did for selling them. And to me, you know, going putting my predictions hat on and hopefully being proven wrong is I do think that there is a risk to the Internet. On that reverse logistics side of there being a, a larger impact than we've ever been able to so predict.
0: You're talking about cool. the specific situation of we bought it online, we got to return it online. So like like Amazon, they're yeah. very good at this. They have a method and a, and a process and a bunch of ways that you can ship back to them and printing out the tags or their QR code, whatever it is, you can return something. They've really streamlined it as much as possible. So you're saying there's going to be a flood of people that need to return stuffs. So we'll see a spike after the Christmas holiday of traffic that's going to catch some folks unawares.
2: That's what I, I think, and we don't see a because I think Amazon is the exception. They mm-hmm. they were built around this kind of process, um, you know. And let's be honest, you can return I think anything at Kohl's or or Whole Foods now that you know. So they they've made it as easy as possible. But some of the smaller e commerce sites and organizations don't necessarily have that. Built in, like the, I think they believe a certain percentage of returns will come via, you know, chatting with someone online or filling out a form online and then getting kind of a a, a printing a, a receipt where they get a, an RMA that they need to print up and then you know paste on the box or glue on the box and then give it to their mailman. But there's a large percentage of them that are historically anticipated them coming back into the store because this size doesn't fit right, you know that type of scenario. And, and people just because of the pandemic aren't comfortable going into the stores at that level. So they're gonna be relying more on that online return service. And I think we're gonna see some organizations really struggle with that concept.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's funny you bring up Best Buy. They were one of my customers back in the days when I worked for a FinServe. And that notion of Black Friday, Cyber Monday, no one touch anything. Network at full capacity. There's nothing broken, right? Is everything ready to roll? Was so ingrained in us. We would literally sit and do nothing for days so that customers of ours, like Best Buy, could 100% process every transaction Without fail. And we would watch the numbers. How, how much money are we putting through the system? How many transactions have flowed through the system? It was like, are we setting new records this year? We set a new record last year. Are we going to break it this year? And, and you're right, JP. I don't think it is like that anymore. I know I as a consumer don't shop that way anymore where I wait for all the big deals because the deals have gotten spaced out where it's not everything on that Friday or that Monday, it's like it's spaced out over weeks. I think you said Best Buy, they've been doing Black Friday for three weeks, basically, something like that.
1: And the weird part about that is I used to work for online gaming companies, which is where they used to do gambling. Mm -hmm. Um, And those uh, websites were driven by specific events. Horses would run around in circles, cosplayers would chase a bit of pigskin around a paddock, you know, things like that. And everybody would get excited and bet on you know, people hitting balls with bats and, and you know, hugging each other and that sort of stuff. It's not my sort of thing, but, you know, maybe it's yours. And um, they would um, get this massive influx of, of gambling would go on at a certain time. And the challenge was, is that users would complain that the performance was broken. And we couldn't know where the performance was. And it's not like we could spread out the load. We All we had to do is, as you said, Ethan, was to spend the entire year building up the website for the peak events and we would literally stumble from event we knew when the events were there was four of them and they happened and and we would stumble from event to event desperately trying to build more infrastructure capacity and then they would add more features into the code and then optimize it for you know ahead of the the code freeze would happen and then the optimization phase would happen for and um but the important part was we'd have some countries that would work fine and other countries that wouldn't and we had no way of knowing this is 10, 15 years ago, long before what we have today. But yeah, it was horrible. And there was no way of knowing. because we. Used to, and the worst part is you're sitting there, you've got nothing to do and you're being paid to do nothing, but you can't have fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's the worst part, right? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh. and we'd all be sitting in hotels near the office. We'd actually be put up in hotels. hotel. Did you have to do that? I live locally, so I didn't have to do that. Yeah. No, uh,
0: in, in my case, no, I, no, but actually- I did have to be on site at the data center, rain, snow, ice, didn't matter, had to be there, but in chair, just in case anything went sideways.
1: Yeah, we had a team, we had especially a small subset of people actually camped out in a hotel across the road from the colo, And we had another team of people uh, camped out in a hotel next to the office. So they were fundamentally on 24-7 calls.
0: Well, JP, we're coming to the end of our time, and uh, we, we've talked about a lot of things. This has been a really fun conversation, but but putting the focus back on Catchpoint and the product, uh, one of the highlights of this show has been changes, the reality of the post-pandemic world. Wow, post-pandemic, we're, we're getting there. We're almost at post-pandemic, right? The vaccines are going to be out there. Um, what have you guys had to do as catch point to tweak the product to deal with our new reality?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think we've we've been a little bit uh, fortuitous in our roadmap. I can't say that we foresaw any of this happening, but we were in position to launch an endpoint service. So, you know, putting some of these nodes into our, to the individual users, specifically the employee experience side of the business, um, and giving us more visibility into the employee perspective and, and access to the different applications and services that they're, that they need. So I think we were fortuitous to bring this to the market as more and more in, uh, individuals work from home. Um, but we are also investing deeply on the network insights part of our portfolio. So I had mentioned. We break it into really three different solutions, even though it's a single platform. We have our employee experience, our customer experience, and what we call the network insights. And I think you know the, the last part of our conversation really focused on network insights and our, our network node, or node network that we have globally. And we're continuing to invest by putting more nodes at almost daily, it seems, um, but building some of the capabilities and insights into that. So I, I think next year you're going to see just double down on the endpoint, the employee experience and our network
0: insights. Really pushing right where you have visibility you know, uh, all the way out there, not just watching packets go by, but, but getting out to those points of origin even from that perspective too. That's what the data that we're seeing is telling us. So yeah. <laughs> okay. JP Bleho, thank you very much for joining us today. And if folks want to find out more about Catchpoint, what would you recommend to them?
2: So there's a couple of things. Uh, one is definitely just go to the website at you know catchpoint.com. Uh, spelled exactly how it sounds, one word. Um, but we also have kind of that slash packet pushers landing page if you want to go to. Uh, if, you, if you go through a demonstration, you get some marketing swag that we're happy to, to distribute. But don't be afraid to follow along on our blogs or myself at JPBlejo on Twitter. I make sure that I, I keep everyone up to date who follows me on what's going on in, in the world of Catchpoint.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much for joining us. Again, that was a fun conversation. And our thanks to uh, to Catchpoint for sponsoring today's episode, because if you're listening to this, this is how Packet Pushers gets, gets it done. Without our sponsors, we can't do what we do here at the Packet Pushers Intergalactic Federation of Fine Podcasts, covering a galaxy's worth of technology for your professional career development. Thanks to you for listening. You know, there's, there's a lot contending for your ears. We know that. So we appreciate that you're listening to our shows. You're pretty awesome. Everybody tells us so, to be honest. So, hey, if you want even more engineering-oriented, nerdy shows, hit PacketPushers.net slash subscribe. Heavy Networking, which is this show. That, that's just the beginning. We've also got IPv6 Buzz, Network Break, Full Stack Journey, Day 2 Cloud, and more in our lineup. More you say? Why, yes, we have a YouTube channel, there's a Slack channel, there's a newsletter, literally more. You got to click around packetpushers.net and find it all. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.